Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Lucinda Holdforth is an accomplished speechwriter, an in-demand speechwriting coach and a seasoned author, and she's worked with the likes of Australian Deputy Prime Minister Kim Beasley in the 90s. Her latest book, 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy, came out in August this year and caught my attention ironically through a post she did on LinkedIn describing the modern perils of the said online professional networking platform where many of us professionals have found ourselves posting, scrolling, adding emotional reactions like insightful or celebrating commenting and sharing. Her leadership communications experience is broad ranging and her client list includes board directors and senior execs across many fields such as aviation, retail, government and telco. Her claim speech running workshop has been delivered to leading organisations such as the Australian Embassy in Beijing, Westpac Bank and law firm Cause Chambers Westgarth. Lucinda also provides one-on-one speech writing, coaching, mentoring on request. She's also authored a couple of other books, and these are called True Pleasures, A Memoir of a Woman in Paris, and Why Manners Matter, The Case for Civilised Behaviour in a Barbarous World. Today, we discuss, of course, the politics of modern virtues, and I warmly welcome Lucinda to the politics of everything. Uh, Thank you very much, Amber. It's great to be here. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Okay, young Lucinda, what did you want to be as a kid? Was it something in this kind of com speech writing author space or did you have a different idea and kind of what's your early career story? My early career story is I didn't really know what a career was when I was growing up in the suburbs of Sydney. All I knew was that I wanted an interesting life and wanted to travel. So when I went to university, I studied and of course, books, writing were always part of my life, but I didn't I was going to say, obviously, you yes, were probably yeah. a, a fairly literary child, yeah. I imagine. I was yeah. bookish. I was bookish. And so when I went to university, I studied languages and I studied English. And then that set me up 
fortunately, to join the Foreign Affairs Department. And I went overseas on a posting to Belgrade as the third, later second secretary. So I could have followed a diplomatic career, but I realised that I, I am not a diplomat, in fact. That's not my nature. I'm quite introverted. And what really interested me was thinking about the future, what society should look like, how we shape it. And, of course, that's what speechwriters do. Uh, So that's how I ended up working back in Canberra for the Labor government writing speeches and have had a career since then working with all kinds of different leaders who in their various ways are trying to shape the future. And I guess that's what I'm interested in and love to think about and love to write about. Well, you obviously found your sweet spot and you are an exceptional writer, of course. This book is um, it's got me thinking and talking and um, sharing and liking all the things that we do on social media. But I guess what I want to touch on today is like what essentially do you regard as that, I guess, that free speech and ideas piece that's essential for democracy and shared progress and how is that sort of at odds or coming up against what we see happening in 2023 on LinkedIn and other, I guess, forums as well. But of course, LinkedIn's the one that I, I first came across you on. But, you know, I guess what is this interplay or this tension that you're seeing and what's what's the issue, I guess, with it? So I guess, um, as I said, I'm interested in how we make a good society, you know, and I read a lot of history and the story of democracy, you know, if we think about what makes a strong democracy like ours or there are different models in other countries, they have certain elements, don't they? They have political rights for citizens, free and fair elections, rule of law, a sort of separation of powers with an independent judiciary, checks and balances for integrity and probity, and of course, freedom of the press. And freedom of the press means freedom of speech. That is absolutely essential to any democracy or any society. And that means that we can contest ideas with each other freely that we have the right to say what we think, but we also have the right to hear what other people think. And one of the concerns that I have is that we are now in a period where freedom of speech is actually under some assault. So we see it very clearly kind of on the right. If you look at America now, places like Florida with Ron DeSantis, there's a whole movement, you know, to shut out particular books from libraries to ban teachers for saying certain things. And it alarms me enormously because if children aren't allowed to read different ideas, how do they learn? And, of course, as we know, no one forces you to read a book. If you don't want to read something, that's fine. So there it is on the right. But I also see it on the left where progressive people in the name of tolerance and diversity and inclusion are shouting down and trying to silence voices that don't conform to what they see as the creation of a perfect society. So we've got deplatforming, we've got sensitivity readings in publishing houses, we've got literary and even comedy festivals cancelling people from appearing. So on both sides of politics in our democracies, we have threats to freedom of speech and that's it's really dangerous. And I guess is this when we're thinking about these things, you know, those terms like cancel culture seem to be coming through more and more and it's it's just something that I wasn't even aware of until a few years ago. But 
It's everywhere. I mean, I'll give you a recent example that really struck me. Sandra Bullock has been apparently cancelled because she played a role in a movie called The Blind Side where that story has ended up being not exactly as it was presented, but she was the actress in it. So it's like, okay, how is she responsible for the fact that that particular family took advantage of that situation? But that's kind of the reaction and I find that such an overreach and I don't understand how that happens. I, I agree with you. And and what's sort of alarming is that it's, I guess this is all amplified, isn't it, by social media, by loud voices, by sort of social pressure. And what, what really, I guess, worries me is, for example, when we look at someone like Ron DeSantis and we say, well, that's terrible, these are these far-right kind of politicians, at least people would have the chance to vote him out in an election. Mm. But what happens when it's sort of covert censorship and it's just a shouting down And when kind of so-called institutions that are important to democracy, like publishing houses and cultural festivals, universities silently shut down the voices or careers of people who say things they don't like, that's not not good. It's insidious uh, and we don't get the chance to vote those people out, do we, or question them? No, it just happens and I think that's... It just happens. That's yeah. what the hub it is. Anyone at any time could be, if you like, a victim of that is what I'm Ab- feeling. I, I, like we're not immune from not. it. No, and the other factor that happens is we start to self-censor. So people are scared to say things. And, in fact, when I started to write this book, I thought I'm nervous about saying these things. I was going to ask you is- about that. I feel like it's a really at hashtag brave uh, thing to be putting out there. <laughs> yes, I am not naturally a hashtag brave, Amber. And so I really had to come to terms with the fact that I was feeling uneasy about things happening in the culture. And then as soon as I realised I was a bit nervous of saying my mind, and here I am a speechwriter, here mm-hmm. I am someone educated and re- genuinely in a privileged position, I thought, well, now I have no ethical choice but to speak up. I I have no choice if I'm to live with myself but to try and figure out a way to talk about that unease and to make it public. Yes, and and jumping into your book, of course, the the introduction or the blurb that I've read about it um, that kind of got me excited once I'd read your LinkedIn post, I'm just going to read it for the audience today and then I want you just to explain to us that moment you decided to write this book and why now. So here goes the bit that really caught my attention. Authenticity vulnerability, humility, transparency. These are some of the 21st century virtues proselytized by mindset gurus, paraded, if not practiced, by big corporations and lauded by professionals on LinkedIn. The quest for authenticity, for example, is central to progressive campaigns for greater diversity and inclusion, while our political and business leaders are highly praised if they appear to be humble. But are Australia's newest virtues fit for purpose? That's huge. It's daring, isn't it? I love it. And I think the piece that gave me the little chuckle that is is actually in the book is when you talked about self-care and how we were not really going to save the burning planet with that. I actually, I think I lolled as the, as the young kids say. <laughs> but I guess what was that moment you decided that this was the book for you for now and, you know, why you had to write it? And you kind of alluded to that in the previous answer. But, yes, it's, look, what the process of it was that I... You know, because I'm a speechwriter, I notice how words appear in the culture and how they kind of, some words gain currency and are everywhere and other words disappear. And what I saw was a series of words that kept appearing and they were vulnerability, 
um, authenticity, my truth, which may or may not be the same as the truth. And, of course, those words or those ideas, if you really agree that they're virtues, then they also imply an almost radical transparency of the self. That is that you are a completely, you make, to be a good person, you must make yourself completely transparent to the world. Then there's self-care, which, as we know, is everywhere. We are constantly being told that it's very important to self-care. And I found myself wondering, well, is there any point at which if self-care is a virtue, you can do too much self-care? Like when, when <laughs> can you ever be selfish? <laughs> yes, are there too many days? Are there too many? Yes, exactly. Too many treatments that I can undergo in the name of self-care. And when does that, can that ever tip into selfishness? It also made me wonder, what if you are someone who is genuinely vulnerable, who is not able to self-care properly? Mm. Does that make that person unvirtuous? And then the final two new virtues I noticed were humility and empathy. So I noticed these virtues and then I thought, well, where on earth did they all, how did these become the new modern virtues? And I traced them back to Brené Brown. I don't know if you know Brené Brown. Yeah, oh, most people know Brené Brown. I've even seen her <laughs> speak live. You've Probably seen about her speak live. 10 years ago. Yeah, she came to Australia about 10 years ago, um, one of the many books that she's written. And it might have been the vulnerability one or it could have been, I don't know, she's written a few. There was a few different ones around bravery. There's a few. Gosh, there's a lot of different Brene Brown books. If you go to Dimmix and and the book, the big bookshop, you know, there's a whole floor basically devoted to Brene Brown. So she gave that talk in 2010, a TED talk called The Power of Vulnerability. And, and you know, she's she's very persuasive and very appealing speaker. And she said that America, the America that she saw today, this is in 2010, was the most obese, over-medicated, indebted an addicted cohort in in American history. So this was, she was diagnosing a society that was very unhappy. And her solution to that was these personal virtues such as vulnerability, which would lead to human connection. What my concern with these virtues is that in the absence of some of those older virtues like honesty, trustworthiness, truthfulness, and self-restraint, we end up with a set of virtues that put self above society or before society. That is, we have every good reason just to keep thinking about ourselves in isolation, in our needs before society. And we put feelings, my truth, my feelings of vulnerability before facts. That seems to me a very dangerous proposition for a democracy, which relies on the idea that the well-being of the community is essential and it's in the broader sense of a community in which we humans flourish. So it's a reversal, a change of order. And, you know, if you look at big corporations, speak, corporate leaders, politicians, university vice-chancellors, school principals, everyone now talks this language of being authentic, of being humble, we praise, my, my, we I think my favourite, and I'm being favourite in, in air quotes, is lived experience. Isn't that an oxy? Like, isn't uh, isn't your experience been lived? Like, I just find that term <laughs> very overused. It's probably not a I virtue d- necessarily, but lived experience. It's well, like it is, somehow it, that means more because you've had it. It's like what? exactly yes, exactly. That's exactly right. It's it's saying that because I've had this experience, no one can question any of my findings in relation to it. And when you know, we were just talking about freedom of speech. 
if I get up and say to you, here's my opinion or my perspective or even here's my experience and therefore this is what I think about some particular social or political issue, that leaves the door open for debate and dialogue. But if I get up like Prince Harry did and say this is my truth, wow, that's a way to silence and shut down any questioning. If you were then to question him, you're actually saying to him, well, you, you know, I'm, I'm questioning your truth. It's a really great way to stifle freedom of speech and the free play of ideas. And I guess, you know, essentially you're resisting this new world orthodoxy. So I guess why does the broader civic values better serve our democracy than those more inward focused ones, those things like we just discussed, my truth, all this personal brand obsession that we see online and offline. And and I guess, you know, some people like even when they write books these days, it's all this kind of this is my version of the world and everyone should be paying attention to it because I'm trying to help other people. Like I find that jarring sometimes that people think they've got that authority to do that, even though it could be helpful to some people. Yes, I think modernity is interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've got away from the sort of old punitive, very, you know, stoic values of the past to some extent, and that's a good thing. I think that's um, a good, that good keep calm and carry on thing. Like we're, we're a little yes, bit beyond that because that's also that. that bred a whole bunch of other issues which I would say in a democracy are not ideal and that's you know the counter to that with things like the Me Too movement people speaking out because power you know silenced people for a long time. That's exactly right so I I welcome a lot of the changes that have taken place but I think we have gone too far. I'll tell you where I see the real problem it's in leadership. So we now talk about a lot about someone being an authentic leader or an empathetic leader. And I understand that that is a very well-meaning idea. But the truth is that we don't need leaders, we don't need to have leaders who are perfect. We don't need to know everything about a leader. Great leaders can be often quite imperfect people. (laughs) And I think it's setting the bar much too high and it's ignoring what the fundamental need we have of leaders would be, which is we need leaders with integrity. That's what we need. And Aristotle, you know, the great classical thinker said that we live in a society and virtue comes from doing the right thing at the right moment for the right reasons. So that means that we we are, we live in circumstances. We live within history and time and issues and problems. So great leaders, uh, and here's one example, John Curtin, who was Australian Prime Minister in the Second World War, Great leaders aren't so obsessed with their authenticity that they won't put it aside for the greater good. Mm. So John Curtin was a pacifist. He did not believe in war. This was a sincerely held belief and he was an extremely sincere man. So there he is, 1939, 1940, 1941, and Australia has to go to war. That's what we have to do. So he has to put aside his deeply held beliefs to take his country into war for the greater good. He died before the war ended. It took an enormous toll on him. And when he died, the whole country, you know, honoured and mourned him for his decency. And it wasn't because he was authentic. It was because he did the right thing. And I find that story very instructive. And I think, what would we do now if some political or corporate leader was in the John Curtin position? Yeah. It would be hard. I was thinking about social media and the and the way in which, yes. say, politicians have had to navigate that on top of 
what is already a pretty heavy media cycle and, and workload. I, you know, I can see yes. the unhelpfulness of that for them because if they're not seen to be cheering the Matildas on last week or, you know, whatever it is, it's yes. like people were like, oh, you're so not Australian or what kind of leader are you? And like yes. they just can't be getting on with it, it seems. They can't be getting on with it. But we would also say what if a leader stood up and said, I was all in favour of this particular set of policies and this is what I've supported all my life like John Curtin with pacifism, and then said, but circumstances have changed and I've changed my mind. They just get pilloried for being inauthentic. So I, you know, I'm very suspicious of these virtues, especially applied at that kind of leadership idea. And it does go to the idea of this personal brand. We, we talk about the personal brand as a very good thing, but in some ways it's a trap, isn't it? It Amber, is a trap. Change as you evolve. We're malleable. And we all do. Altitudes. But I yeah. think, I mean, all you have to see, and I think, you know, you've touched on this in your book and I've noticed it as well. I don't, I've got all these contacts on LinkedIn and I, and to be honest, LinkedIn's a great platform for me as a professional for the right purposes. But at the same time, the amount of people I've seen change, not really their job title, but how they describe themselves at any one time. You know, chief brand maker, like all just these self-appointed titles <laughs> that, like, they're amusing and 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 whatever. But it just, but last week weren't you like a yoga teacher or whatever? Like, it, it just sort of feels like the the power of reinvention means how are you ever able to really have a a linear sense of who this person is and a holistic view of them? Yes, what I noticed with LinkedIn, you know, that that excerpt from my book, people said, "Oh, you're, you know, you're being really tough on people just trying to make a living, and they're on LinkedIn." And I'm on LinkedIn too. I have nothing against LinkedIn. I but, found but you on really, LinkedIn, so the irony's right there. There you go. There you go. So, nothing wrong with LinkedIn as a platform. I think what I find disturbing at a deeper level is I see. We live, you know, when Brene Brown said our big problems were indebtedness and addiction and anxiety, she diagnosed that as a need for connection, right? But others have diagnosed the problem more deeply and more systematically. So a left-wing kind of political journalist, George Monbiot, talks about neoliberalism mm -hmm. and a much more conservative uh, journalist, Martin Wolf, talks about laissez-faire capitalism. And and that what does that mean? That means... The top very few percent get all the wealth. The rest of us, including professionals, are in precarious jobs, could get sacked at any time. There's big corporate head offices look like great places, but actually they're places of great anxiety and stress. Meanwhile, outsourcing jobs, precarious work, gig economy, uh, people scraping along See, I, what I see when I looked at LinkedIn is anxiety actually underneath, people yeah. kind of talking a big positive a anxiety game. Anxiety and insecurity, like the fact yes. that it's all out there. And, and, we, and we had a little chat before we pressed record today, just the fact that there's this blurring of what the platform is. So is, is it personal? Is it professional? If you're going to be authentic, do you need to have photos of your entire family on there to show that you're a family <laughs> person? Or, you know, like do you need to be lying Absolutely. on a piece of cardboard at the CEO's sleep out? Like why do I need to know any of this? Exactly. And it's, look, to be honest, it suits the, it suits big corporations that are out there at the top making, making the big bucks, those, that very small top, top level of people. The 1% club. The 1% <laughs> club. It, it suits them if their workers are out there promoting how great their companies are. So as, as you and I will have seen, so many people, I'm so proud of company X because we 
had the you know the pride float or we had the you know the fundraiser for this and that some cupcakes I'm so proud of them and so the company gets to bask in the glow of being uh, open inclusive tolerant diverse and so on when in fact behind the scenes the same old stuff is going on you know, outsourcing jobs, underpaying workers, as we know, Barring ripping off customers, yes, yes. Uh, ripping off their um, suppliers. So, oh, it's just a look over their strategy. And I see LinkedIn as a kind of place where that's sort of playing out underneath. Amidst all the rah-rah, isn't it great talk? Lots of yeah. And there's an overreach, I think, people just overly celebrate everything now. Like that's my personal view. That's not necessarily the virtue discussion, but it's like uh, it's needing to know everything. I suppose my question to you is what is the anecdote to save our democracy from this kind of virtue signalling but still recognising the world and maybe you and I are not in the generation that's going to be the next generation of leaders. So we need to kind of go, okay, they want affirmations, they want want labels to be different, they want different wording and, and narratives around their life and their story and what means something to them do we need to somehow fully embrace that while kind of hanging on to some of these values and virtues of the past how how do we do that well one reason why I wrote the book Amber was because I don't have you know an answer I wanted to know what I want to know what other people think I think there's a couple of things at a bigger systemic level I think the education system has failed a little bit and I think young people need history, need to understand that we live we live through time and progress is possible, uh, but so is decline. So in the rush to make a better, more perfect society, and that's what we're talking about, the younger generation wants to make a more inclusive, diverse society, and I completely endorse that. And, in fact, I benefit One from One where this. we don't kill the we're planet. Good. I mean, I think that yeah, would be so good as well. <laughs> would be a very good thing, and I think as a woman I... I am so grateful for the feminists who created the path for me to be able to have a career. And so as we try to make a more diverse society, I think uh, that's all terrific. What worries me is that people don't have the sense that you have to have the democracy, democratic practices first. They can't be undermined. So if you go around cancelling people, silencing them, shutting them down if their opinions aren't as advanced as yours, and that's a bit to do, that's a bit what's happening among that sort of younger cohort of activists, then you're shutting down a conversation and then you're undermining the democratic practices, which were the only thing that are going to make it possible for us to make a really good society. So it's counterproductive, the methods that they are using quite often. Yeah. I get it. It's like they're skipping a step. It's like they're just the, the work is not being done under the foundation is not is being eroded. So all this other layer on the cake stuff perhaps is going to unravel. It's hard to know where we're going to end up. Well, I think years. when you say the planet, I mean we don't we have we have really big issues <laughs> to face. And climate change is clearly the number one. But the other aspect that that I think really comes up both in the work of George Monbiot and Martin Wolf, and which never really gets mentioned by Brene Brown, is social socioeconomic disadvantage is still a reality. And so the hard work of giving everyone a good education, for example, in Australia, a migrant nation, taking care of our education system, taking care of our health system, making it possible for childcare so that women can fully participate. These are the sort of big looking after the whole challenge of aged care. These are big, hard 
issues and they're they're really about us working together as a community and some of the issues that are being talked about and raised are kind of side issues actually to the main game. Yeah, I I think you've articulated that really well. Changing tack a little bit, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given in business or life and why? (laughs) Well, you warned me that this question was coming. Have you time to think? You did. And I thought, will I give a, the, you know, a nice answer or will I tell the truth? And I thought, No, you've got to be honest and truthful. You've got to, you've got to really practice what you preach here, Lucinda. I'm telling the truth. The truth is the best piece of advice I ever got from my mother who said, plan for the long term and don't take too many risks and be sensible. And that's the best advice I ever received because I ignored every single bit of that advice. I did not plan for the long term. I, I, I've taken risks in my life. Things have gone badly, things have gone well, but I'm now at the point where I think, you know, all the risks I took, all the changes I made, all the all the strange paths I went down that, that seemed like dead ends, that's what brings you to where you are at any point in your life. And I'm very glad, I love my mother dearly, and I'm very glad I did not take her advice. I love it. <laughs> so if we spoke in a year's time, what would be your number one big goal to have achieved and why is it crucial? And there'll be no hashtag blessed at the be end. No hashtag blessed. Uh, look, it sounds kind of daggy, but I, I'm really so pleased that people have, have taken the time to listen to my ideas and I hope other people smarter and wiser than me are going to take up the conversation and we can we can have a democratic conversation about what kind of society we want and that means what kind of virtues do we want for our kids absolutely we want them to grow up feeling vulnerable or do we want them to grow up strong and capable with a sense of our community first and that their self-care comes within the context of making a great society that's that's what I hope for and a final takeaway message for us all today on the politics of modern virtues My final message is really just to say thank you for having me on your fantastic podcast. Absolutely been a pleasure to talk with you. And I invite everyone that's listening to to have a think and see and, and participate in the conversation. Absolutely. And that's what this show is all about. So thank you so much for coming on today to the Politics of Everything. And if you do want to connect further with Lucinda, there will be details on the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.